Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good morning and welcome to the February 2024 edition of Masters of the Universe. I'm Eric Kazatsky, Head of Municipal Strategy here at Bloomberg Intelligence and joined as always by my associate Karen Altamirano, also of BI Muni Strategy. So today we're covering a topic that is probably going to be a bit confusing for many in our space uh, since we like to posit ourselves as the Luddites of fixed income, but I think engaging and interesting nonetheless, we're going to be talking about technology and not only just technology, but technology and pricing and where that intersection actually lies and who are the disruptors in our space. And we're actually lucky to be joined by one such disruptor uh, when it comes to the pricing model for munis today. So today we're joined by Charles Elkin. For those of you unfamiliar, uh, Charles is actually the co-founder of a company called FIC AI. So by background, Charles is actually an adjunct professor of computer science at the University of California, San Diego, as well as the co-founder for that company. And he also has developed a foundation model for municipal bonds throughout his career. He was previously a managing director and the head of global machine learning at Goldman Sachs. And before that, he was the first Amazon fellow leading a team of over 30 scientists and engineers in Seattle, Palo Alto, and New York doing R&D and machine learning for both e-commerce and cloud computing. So certainly a skill set that not many have when it comes to municipal fixed income. And we're lucky to uh, have him to join us for this conversation today. Charles, thank you. Happy to have you. Thank you. Charles, thank you so much for joining us today. That's quite an elaborate background that you have. Um, for anyone who is not familiar with FIC AI, can you let us know how you got started with, with FIC? Yeah. So the, the, the concept you know, was an outgrowth of the various projects that I'd worked on with my team at Goldman Sachs. And uh, we started the company three years ago with my co-founder, Gil Shulman, who's someone that I worked with at uh, Amazon and you know, Gil is absolutely great. He has a, he worked in investment banking before, you know, he has a Wharton MBA and he had been a successful entrepreneur actually before going to Wharton. And so, um, you know, we, we put our um, strengths together and, um, you know, thought this was a great opportunity to like, you know, Eric said, to potentially be disruptive in a large asset class, which, you know, like Eric said, is, uh, one of the less advanced technologically in, in finance. And, you know, that, that creates the opportunity. And, you know, my background, you know, has been in machine learning and artificial intelligence for a very long time. You know, I was doing research and teaching in the area at the University of California before there was much interest from industry. And, you know, over the last 10 years, especially, the interest has just expanded um, from, the more narrow technology industry to e-commerce, you know, such as Amazon and to finance. And, you know, now, especially with ChatGPT to really, you know, the whole world of business. And uh, like Eric said, you know, we have developed a foundation model for municipal bonds. The idea of a foundation model is really there is one artificial intelligence model that uh, captures as much as possible about an entire domain. So ChatGPT is a foundation model for language and knowledge. It essentially 
incorporates um, everything, all the concepts it has learned from the, the entire internet, and that's how it can answer questions. Mm -hmm. And our foundation model is more specialized. It incorporates everything that we can learn from the uh, terms and conditions of the million or so municipal bonds that are out there and everything that we can learn in real time from the 50,000 or more trades that happen every day in munis. And so we have a machine learning model that takes all this information and uh, integrates it. And then it provides uh, useful outputs for our customers. So I just want to like make a, a clarification here because FIC AI just doesn't focus on munis. I, I think you actually cover other asset classes as well. So I think you guys cover MBS and, and CDOs and other asset backs and corporates for pricing, correct? Not yet. So we okay. are a startup. We're still a small company. So we've been very focused and our focus has been on munis. The reason we called the company FIC.AI is because you know when we're bigger and more successful, then we absolutely plan to expand to other asset classes. But um, our current offering is focused and it's in muni bonds. So is the thought process that if you could get munis, quote unquote, right, then the other asset classes will be easy to back into? Definitely. Uh, so munis are a more difficult asset class than corporate bonds. Mm -hmm. Corporate bonds are handled successfully, including you know, Bloomberg has some great products in the area. Um, yeah. And municipal bonds are really the next domino to topple, and that's the domino that we're working on. Look, I, I mean, you know, quite self-servingly, I have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of BVAL, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other competitor out there, <clears throat> ICE. Um, you know, look, there, there are two proven models in the industry. You know, what was the thought process for you mm -hmm. and Gil, you know, coming from a non-finance most recent background to say, mm -hmm. hey, you know what would be interesting? Let's go disrupt uh, the municipal yeah. bond market. Yeah. Well, we actually do both have a background in finance. You know, we don't have decades of experience specifically in munis, but um, uh, you know, Gil was an investment banker and his Wharton MBA is with a specialty in finance. And I was at Goldman for uh, more than two years and uh, have an academic background in the, the area also. Um, uh, our, our thought process was that um, you know, munis were the opportunity, that um, uh, we could build a foundation model that would operate in real time. So this is very different from an end-of-day pricing service, even very different from a pricing service that um, uh, maybe updates every hour or two. And uh, we're different in several ways. So like I mentioned, we're real time. We are completely objective, completely data-driven. There's no human intervention or judgment, and that can be valuable for uh, people who want prices that have, you know, not been, you know, influenced. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I learned about, even before I joined Goldman, uh, you know, as an outsider, is you know the LIBOR scandal and you know the um, uh, the risks yeah. involved when there's human influence. So our our prices are completely objective, data-driven. And they take into account the size and direction of a trade, which obviously in an over-the-counter market is uh, very important in influencing the price at which a trade will actually happen. And um, because our model is a machine learning model, it's a neural network. It's smaller than ChatGPT, but it's in the same category of model. 
it, it actually operates in uh, milliseconds. And so um, if somebody has a portfolio of a thousand bonds or a, a list of a thousand bonds that they can make bids on, then we can provide estimated prices, evaluated prices for that portfolio in, in seconds. And then we can you know, update that um, in you know, every minute if desired. So it really is a level of capability that uh, goes beyond what existing pricing services deliver. I, I want to sort of just back that up for a second. And only because I know that the level of sophistication from the listener base is, is probably pretty wide ranging. Uh-huh. And look, I, I, I'm semi-technologically savvy, but I would hate for people to be listening to the podcast, have to put it on pause to go Google what a neural network is. Uh-huh. So, you know, if we could try and just sort of maybe just explain to me like a, like a kindergartner, uh-huh. what some of the, the technology stacks that you guys are adopting here for your pricing that are sort of different than the conventional models that they may be more familiar with? Mm-hmm. Well, the way we think about it is that there are information providers out there. So MSRB is an information provider. And uh, with a regulatory 15-minute delay, which is going to go down, you know, prices, trades need to be reported, and that's information. But that's uh, 50,000 pieces of information every day. And so that's more than any human could integrate. And so what we do with technology is really the integration of the information on behalf of the humans. So we think of ourselves as being a knowledge provider, which is the layer on top of an information provider. And, um, you know, the human brain, you know, is a neural network. It's different from the neural networks that we implement on computers. But, um, uh, you know, there's similarities. And... So what we've developed, and this is based on your know, 50 years of research, um, uh, is a neural network that takes all the information that's available on the terms and conditions of munis. So that's hundreds of data points for each muni bond. When you and, say terms uh, and conditions, though, what do you mean specifically? Like uh, everything I would see on a DES page or? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Starting with the basics like the callability, the coupon, the issuer the rating okay. if the rating is available but mm-hmm. one of the potential outputs of our foundation model is um, uh, predicted ratings and those are useful for bonds that are not rated those are also useful for when there's a discrepancy between the actual rating from an agency and then the rating that is predicted by our model you know that can be an indication that the rating from the agency might be stale you said earlier that um, you decided to, to tackle munis first because you saw that there was a need. So yeah. why do you think why do you think based on your experience so far and what you've seen, like why do you think munis has notoriously been mm-hmm. so reluctant to adapt modern technologies? Um, uh, I think maybe the number one reason is that the technology is not being made available in a way that is easy enough for the hundreds or thousands of market participants, you know, thousands of market participants to to adopt. You know, many muni dealers are small. Um, uh, you know, many mutual fund managers, other asset managers, um, uh, are not very technologically savvy. So, something that we've really focused on is making our technology easy to use. Um, uh, you know, our customers 
uh, using us, uh, you know, through a web browser. And uh, that's, you know, very convenient, um, easy to understand. They're also using us um, uh, through Excel um, that fits into their current workflows. Um, uh, we, you know, are very open to, you know, integrating into existing um, uh, your order management systems and your know, other software that our customers are using already. So we want to be as easy to use as possible. We are easy to use and we think that's going to help adoption. So another question that comes into my mind, right? So you decide to tackle the most esoteric asset class and to some degree, right? It, it definitely needs a little bit of disruption. But I think for those who are listening, the first thought that might pop into their head is, you know, where is this going to cause the most disruption? Do you see it sell side or buy side? Because I could really see the arguments for both. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, ultimately, we think that um, every participant in the muni business is going to be finding value in technology that we're providing. Or, of course, you know, as time goes by, we're going to have competitors. Um, and um, so we, we think that the... The mini business, you know, which is not a small asset class, $4 trillion approximately, you know, is yeah. going to follow the evolution of um, other fixed income asset classes like corporate bonds, which, have, which are following the evolution of equities. And you know, from the point of view of you know, disruption and opportunity, um, from my time at, at Goldman Sachs, you know, there's really great work happening in automation and increased transparency through technology and equities and in fixed income. Um, but um, it's precisely where things are less advanced that there can be more opportunity. You know, something which is public information, you know, it's been many years now that Goldman Sachs has been doing fully automated trading of odd lot corporate bonds. And, you know, that's based on real-time pricing um, and, um, there's there's other important components to the puzzle, but um, we those components of the puzzle and the real time pricing you know don't exist currently or didn't exist before our product for munis. There are some hedge funds which are trading munis successfully, and they have some internal automation. It's only going to increase, and uh, we are building the core of that technology and then making it available to uh, participants across the ecosystem. You know, our, our senior advisors, you know, have brainstormed with us about how this technology can be valuable to the issuers and to their um, financial advisors. Um, so that's a you know, very large population of uh, customers for us. I mean, are you thinking that, you know, going forward, that this might actually be incorporated into the actual underwriting facet as well? Definitely, yes. Yeah. And um, how do you see that working exactly? Because I can sort of like, I can conceptually get it. I just can't quite eloquently mm -hmm. put into words how that would actually work. But I can see the fact that you have almost like a real-time non-customer read information stream coming in to almost, you know, you'd almost have like a jump on pre-pricing. Yeah. Now, pre-pricing -pre of um, bonds that don't yet exist is exactly what uh, we can offer. So, you know, we provide you know, real-time estimates of, you know, a bond with these characteristics, these terms and conditions 
in the state of the market right now with all the trades that have happened so far today and all the trades that have happened over the past year, you know, this is our highly accurate best guess as to what this bond would, tr would trade at. So, you know, if you have um, an issuer, say the MTA in New York, which is, um, you know, they're considering, you know, supposing we issued our bond with a 4% coupon, what price would be the market clearing price? And supposing we issued it with a 3% coupon, what would be the market clearing price? And, you know, uh, a 30-year um, uh, maturity or a 20-year maturity. So um, our technology can answer those hypothetical questions and can update the answers in, in real time. And so then, you know, if they have a, you know, they can see what the estimated market clearing price is for all the different possible bond structures, and then they can make an informed choice about which structure they think they want to issue. Sticking with the topic of price discovery, you know, the challenge with munis is that they trade so infrequently, you mm -hmm. know, and they have that, the, the buy and hold nature of munis makes it, makes it difficult. So how is it, you can dive a little bit deeper in terms of like how AI can help derive that fair value pricing that's needed in, in the market. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So essentially every trade that actually happens is a data point for us. And uh, so we get a million data points every month. And that is actually a lot of data. And what our model is doing is essentially you know, teasing out the influence of each possible characteristic of a bond, like, you know, what is the state of issue? You know, what is the um, type of issuer, your hospital versus nursing home? Um, what is the way the market um, is, uh, you know, pricing, you know, different callability structures, and then it's putting all that um, together. And one thing which is very important is that we actually have um, two fundamental models. So one model is our proprietary real-time yield curve. And then the other model is um, you know, our best estimate of the spread for any given bond relative to the real-time yield curve. Because of course, you know, spreads relative to a yield curve uh, much more stable than the actual yields. And, um, but we have developed our own real-time yield curve because uh, uh, we saw that um, uh, you know, that was a need also. What do you mean by spreads are more stable than yields? Because, I mean, if you look at a chart of spreads, especially since the pandemic started, they've been pretty, pretty you know, unidirection and, and getting tighter, right? Uh, well, um, uh, if um, uh, you're hold, holding all else constant, um, uh, you know, a, a California bond might trade at a higher yield than a, a Texas bond. But um, uh, if the um, general level of yields goes up or down, the general level of the Texas and California bonds will, will, go, will also go up or down. And, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not in perfect lockstep. But oh, I understand it, you're saying like relative spreads as opposed to absolute spreads. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I meant. Yes. Yes. Okay. That makes more sense. I was just thinking in terms of like absolute and I was like, well, they tend to, to get tighter depending on demand, supply, et cetera. 
So talk to us a little bit about the the curve you're building. Mm-hmm. And you know, my knowledge of curves stems from obviously we have a triple A AAA, uh, product, and you know, there's a competing product out there as well that you know both are sort of semi industry standard. But I think what's what's unique to both of those is the fact that there's two components, right? You have the observation facet of the curve, and then you have the contribution facet of the curve. And so I've always been over the assumption, right, if you don't have observations and you rely more heavily on your contributions, for instance, first thing in the morning, nothing is really traded, but you're getting a lot of information feed from your contributors. So so you can generate a curve, you know, obviously with some treasury input as well. If you're not taking any contribution data, how are you coming up with a curve right out of the gate in the morning that's lacking on actual trades? Mm-hmm. So the, the the key differentiator about our curve is that the main input to it is actually ETF prices. Um, uh, so there's uh, you know several mini bond ETFs that are heavily traded and uh, where we can observe the prices for those ETFs in real time. And um, so our, our curve is, is based on ETF prices. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's, you know, over the years, there's been some controversy in finance, at least um, theoretical controversy among, you know, finance academics about, you know, do ETF prices lead or lag the prices of the underlying assets? Yeah. But I think especially um, uh, after the experience with the COVID disruptions in 2020, um, it, the the truth is more in the direction that the ETF prices are a better indication of the true value of the underlying because the ETFs are more liquid and um, continue yeah. trading even when the underlyings you know, freeze up. So we yeah. use mini ETFs um, as the foundation of our real-time muni curve and um, uh, all the measurements that we've done you know indicate that that gives us um, a, a a yield curve that really does reflect uh, the the minute by minute uh, tenor of the market i like it when people corroborate research we've done so i thank you for that because we actually wrote i want to say it was late 2020 that you know movement on hyd which is the high yield muni etf is actually the you know proverbial canary in the pricing coal mine mm-hmm. and it was actually leading um cash you know high yield bonds by a few days yeah. um you know based on on the movements we were saying so it's it's nice that you guys have sort of scientifically proven that and mathematically proven that as well um you know, I think another question that I would have on the curve, is it structured the same way as the other two industry curves right now? Like, like is it a non-call curve? Is it a callable curve? Like, how is it constructed? Mm-hmm. It's actually constructed to, um, uh, to replicate essentially the, the S&P, you know, end of day indexes. Because um, uh, you know, we found that we can replicate those very closely. Um, uh, you know, I think one, one name for what we're doing is essentially we're providing fair value estimates in real time of the S&P indices. And then we're using that as the basis for the relative spreads that we're, we're estimating. So when we measure the accuracy of our prices, we measure them against the actual trades. So ultimately, we're measuring dollars against dollars. But and we have high accuracy, but um, uh, 
we well we've we've done experiments using you know other curves for relative spreads and um, uh, you know the the, the uh, you know, our own curve is the one that gives us the highest accuracy and you know we think that's because it is real time and because you know like you said um, it's really you know capturing the state of the markets um, uh, better and faster than individual trades. And talking a little bit about um, indices, you know how how much of a how much does credit data factor into into the curves or into the the pricing that you do? That's a good question. Yeah. yeah. Well, we find that um, uh, using um, uh, credit ratings, you know, AAA, AA, um, uh, provides a very small incremental accuracy to to our model. So. Uh, you know, if, if that's what you mean by, by credit ratings, yes, we use them. But what we find is that um, the other information that we have available, um, which is, you know, all the trades that happen every day and all the details of the terms and conditions of the bond, we find that um, uh, those contain almost all the same information that's contained in the credit ratings. And, you know, in retrospect, that's not so surprising because, you know, credit ratings are really a point in time snapshot of you know, when they were issued and um, uh, you know things change and um, uh, you know the 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 market opinion of you know different credits with the same rating can can diverge um, you know like 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 eric said um, you know there's there's always you know changes in the relative value of say texas versus california of hospitals versus nursing homes and you know so our machine learning models, you know, like a human analyst, um, uh, alert to that and the credit ratings are just one input. So aside from just like, how about the, the bonds that aren't rated at all? Is there any other, anything else that you use in terms of like, are you looking at fundamentals at all, I guess? Are you looking for like high question. yield? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we, we, we don't look directly at fundamentals. That's another opportunity for further improvement for us. Um, uh, you know, we don't look, for example, you know, at the um, uh, the balance sheet or the income statement of a school district. Um, but what our model is doing is um, uh, transferring knowledge across uh, you know similar credits. So if California school districts are generally under financial stress and their bonds are generally losing value, then our model is learning that in real time and then using that to, as an input to the price that it estimates for any particular bond from any particular California school district. Your Karen's point's interesting, right? How are you guys able to handle a portfolio of bonds that are non-rated, like things that are traditionally hand-priced uh, by the pricing services, right? Things mm -hmm. that are singular owner, don't trade, really sort of no true comps in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, what we're doing, you can view it as being a 21st century version of your know, matrix pricing. Um, uh, so, you know, a bond that hasn't traded recently, a high yield bond, you know, it, it's difficult to, um, uh, to be precise about what it's worth. Um, uh, but it's, it's still got, you know, characteristics, you know, it's from California. It's a school district. Um, it's got certain quality. It's got certain coupon, um, and um, so 
you know, each of those is an influence. The influences interact. And um, uh, then our model is learning the impact of the influences, learning the interactions, and coming up with um, a, a best estimate. One of the things that we can get as an output from our model also is um, an estimate of uh, precision. So we can you know, tell you really error bars on our estimates, and those error bars will be wider for bonds that haven't traded recently or bonds that are high yield. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, do you see that as a limitation or, I mean, I guess like I'm still sort of like stuck on this point, right? If we have this like area of the market, and it's not that large, right? The non-rated universe, mm -hmm. there really are no like comps for the network, you know, the neural network or the AI to sort of digest. Like how, how would you navigate that? I see that as like a huge opportunity set because this yeah. is what people are really trying to solve, especially the hedge funds and the ARB accounts you're talking about, you know, originally. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we see every trade that happens as being a comp and we view it as some comps are close and some comps are distant. If it's a same day trade in the same bond, then that's a very close comp. Uh, okay. But even if it's the same bond, if the most recent trade was a month ago or even worse, a year ago, then it's not a good comp, even though it's the same bond. And we'll actually get uh -huh. better information from more recent trades in, in, in different bonds. And the model is integrating all that and um, really internally putting weights on all that information. It is somewhat similar to, to a human process. Um, and you know, a human expert will you know, have a combination of your know, intuition and knowledge and a combination of you know, things that he or she can explain and things that he or she has difficulty explaining, um, but based on experience. And you know, our models, you know, very much the, the, the million or so trades that happen every month are the experience that the model is learning from. And you know, humans still have a big advantage over machines in many dimensions, but one advantage the machines have is that they can um, learn from a, uh, in a systematic way from a very large volume of data that humans can't even begin to read, let alone learn from. So while incorporating artificial intelligence into munis appears to be coming more frequent, or at least it seems that way, you know, you're hearing it, you know, if like every week you're hearing it being discussed or someone's writing about it solely in the, in the muni space. Um, would you say it's still moving on the slower side versus where we're, how we're seeing it be adapted in other asset classes? Um. I think artificial intelligence and machine learning have been adapted in other classes earlier than in munis. Um, I think it's difficult to say whether it's faster or slower. I think it is much more straightforward to say which asset classes you know, are leading and which are lagging. And, and munis are lagging, but uh, that's where the opportunity is. And I think things can move fast in munis. We had a discussion, I want to say, probably when we first started doing these podcasts, talking about portfolio trading and basket trading in munis. And it's really not a thing. It should be a thing, but it's really not because people are having problems, you know, doing it in size. But I actually see what you're talking about as sort of the other side of that equation. 
Are you looking at it as an opportunity to sort of, you know, sort of invigorate the possibility of doing portfolio trading for munis by being able to like take, you know, I would say 3000 QCIPs and price them immediately for someone who wants to get into the asset class? Absolutely. Yeah, we can take 3000 QCIPs and we can price them in, in seconds. And, um, uh, you know, we our prices, you know, on average are correct. Um, you know, the probability of our price being too high or too low is almost exactly you know, equal 50 percent. And the more different uh, bonds you're pricing, then the more the errors in the prices will tend to cancel each other out. And um, so the the value that we can ascribe to a portfolio is even more accurate than the value that we can ascribe to an individual bond. Um, or with a portfolio, um, you know, we can, if, if there's some other, you know, benchmarks for price, then, you know, our prices can indicate discrepancies. And so then, um, depending on what the market structure is, maybe you can use that to identify the bonds that are cheaper to deliver or the bonds that are more desirable to receive. Interesting. So I know your focus is primarily pricing, but I want to get your take on um, which area of the market do you see changing the fastest with the help of technology? Is mm -hmm. it more on the with like algorithmic trading? Is it is it is it the getting you know fair value pricing, or is it maybe you know those um, companies that are using it for for like credit analysis or gathering data for for credit? Mm -hmm. We we absolutely you know, are moving in the direction of algorithmic trading and helping our customers do algorithmic trading. And you know, like I mentioned, it's public information. Goldman Sachs does algorithmic trading of odd lot corporates. And you know, the most technologically advanced component of that is the pricing engine. But there are other components, including, um, you know, if you're a dealer and you have your current portfolio and Maybe you know, what are you overweight in? What are you underweight in? And you know, if you're overweight, then you're reluctant to um, purchase more and more eager to sell, and vice versa if you're underweight. And so that'll modulate the prices that you're willing to offer or willing to accept if you're a dealer. Then conversely, if you're on the um, uh, buy side, then you have you have views. You know, it's views that make a market. You know, our models don't have views. Our models just uh, you know, you know, estimate what the current market clearing price is for, for any asset. But then the market participants are going to have views, which they're going to use to adjust the price that they're willing to take or the price that they're willing to pay. And um, uh, we can, um, uh, so we can you know, go in that direction in particular with our models for being underweight and overweight and also models for neutralizing risk models for for hedging um uh, you know you know let's say you're overweight uh, texas and um or you're underweight texas and you could buy a florida bond well is that actually a good way of um you know hedging your texas risk or not we can in the future um you know model that in an algorithmic machine learning way Super interesting. Well, look, I mean, I want to switch the conversation to probably stuff that's going to make everybody feel quite uncomfortable. And that's, you know, attrition in our industry and, and job losses that could potentially come on the heels of, you know, new technology. 
So the first question I have is, you know, obviously with several underwriting firms leaving public finance, you know, is there an opportunity here for AI to possibly mitigate, um, you know, some lack of liquidity? Mm-hmm. My my impression is that the fundamental reason why firms have been leaving is the capital intensity. And uh, I don't think that's something that we address directly. Um, uh, I don't think that technology like we're developing is um, directly going to um, you know, be responsible for job losses because the experience in, in other asset classes is that you know, as you increase the ease of trading, then the volume of trading you know, increases. Um, and it makes a lot of sense that um, if, if spreads narrow, if transparency increases, then people who would otherwise not trade because the transaction costs are too high, that they will, they will start trading. And um, you know, we think that can be a, a social benefit and you know, a positive for the, the industry. Um, the one thing that uh, we see in our data is that when uh, consumers you know, buy muni bonds, on average, they're closer to a central price than when they sell the muni bonds. Um, and so the um, but you know, consumers who want to rebalance their their portfolios, I think in in the long run, um, you know, that's going to increase the volume of trading. We're going to make it easier. We already are making it easier for financial advisors to create bond ladders on behalf of their clients, which is something which is very labor intensive. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the cost of issuance can be lowered with with some of the technology that you're leveraging? Oh, um, uh, I'm not sure. We haven't thought through how the cost of issuance can be lowered. We have thought through how maybe you could call it the accuracy of issuance. that uh, you know, an, an issuer who is you know considering different possible structures for the issue, that we can provide an independent and objective um, source of you know estimates about um, at what price they could issue those different structures, and then again, you know, an, an issuer might have views about the direction of interest rates, or an issuer might have um, you know cash flows that they need to match and um, we can help them evaluate the different alternatives. It seems like there's a business opportunity there on the FA and MA side as well, right? With, oh, with yeah. That sort of uh, tool. Yeah. All yeah. Right. I mean, look, this is a lot to unpack and I, I just want to ask one final question. You know, obviously you sort of walked us through the current disruption opportunities, but, you know, for someone with sort of like your technological background, where do you see the muni industry in five years? And what do you think is going to be the next big thing when it comes to, you know, leveraging technologies? Mm -hmm. Maybe the next big thing is going to be um, using all the real-time local news. Um, uh, You know, I was a professor in Mr. California for a long time in, in San Diego. There's many different local school districts. And, um, you know, they're all having different ups and downs with their budgets. And yeah. you know, occasionally they have actual financial scandals. And um, uh, that, um, uh, you know, 
you know, using that information, doing automated natural language understanding of that information. And then once you've collected, you know, the data about that, which really would be your know, huge data, like think of your know, hundreds of, uh, of news articles about um, 50,000 different issuers, maybe yeah. there are even some patterns that we can learn. Yeah, I, I mean, I've long sort of been of the belief that you could probably identify rising times of municipal stress from mm -hmm. the folks who are doing the local news reporting. But yes. All right. This has been an awesome conversation. Charles Elkin, thank you for joining us. We wish you and FIC AI all the best and uh, look forward to catching up uh, at the end of this year and see how the growth is going.